It is good to see you. I've already said that, but it's true. It's good to be here, a part of an Easter Sunday morning service. And Easter brings with it all kinds of memories and traditions. Uh, my mom and dad are here uh, for the first time in worship with us for the first time in well over a year. Uh, they've been vaccinated and all good, and we've been able to spend some time with them. And I was thinking about Easter this week and thinking about something that happened uh, a little while ago, a year and a half ago or so. My sister-in-law um, got some of their old reel-to-reel video footage. How many of you here know what I'm talking about? All right. And my family growing up, uh, my grandparents had a reel to reel video player and we would go to their house. And on special occasions, we would watch the film. No sound. It's all silent. But we would put it on there. And um, I don't know how your labeling system was. Those of you that had reel to reel. Ours was not what you would call exquisite. And so there was always searching to find that one that everyone wanted to see. How many of you have no clue what I'm talking about right now? Yeah. OK. So that's good. All right. And so they got their reel-to-reel footage digitized. And so it was passed back through me to get to them. And so, of course, I took the jump drives. First of all, it was just crazy to see this huge box of reel-to-reels and um, like one little jump drive in there. And you stick it in, they're all there, the videos are there. And I I started going through, and none of those were labeled either because we didn't have good labels on them. And so you didn't know what you were watching and somehow ended up with my uncle riding a bull in a rodeo. I don't know how that happened. Um, Watch that. But then there was the one that came up that apparently was... Somewhere, and I only know this because of the fashion, in the late 70s, when I was about three or four years old, and it was Easter Sunday morning, Dad was in full beard and a suit that was directly from the 70s, collars popping and everything, and I was in a suit that apparently had been pulled off of the hanger and out of the bag for the first time that morning. It was clean, all right? And just the thoughts of what Easter was. Get dressed up in your best, and you go to church, you do your Easter egg hunts. you got all of these things around. We've had a great week here at First Baptist. Last Sunday with the community Easter egg hunt, we had a great turnout for that. Scavenger hunt, even with the floodwaters rising, literally, at Mossright Park. Had a great Friday night, um, Good Friday, online service. That was awesome to have go out into the community. Yesterday had one of our largest attendances we've had in a long time at our church uh, Easter egg hunt that happened here uh, outside. And then went to the neighborhood just across the way um, and gave out some gifts that we're excited to give out, invite some people to come to church. Maybe you're here, you got one of those, and you're here as a part of that. Thank you for being a part of our service today. It's been great to have all of these events happen. But I discovered something about Easter tradition this week that I did not know. Did you know that Easter is the largest candy holiday in the United States of the year? It's not Halloween. It's not Christmas. It's not Valentine's Day. It's Easter. And what's interesting about that is Easter has... Some candies that the other can- other ones don't have. Now, everybody has their own kind of specifics, but like Easter really has some unique candies. And we could talk about the best of those, but there's no debate about the fact that the Reese's eggs are the best. And so there's no, there's no even need to talk about that. All right. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? All right. And a close second are the Starburst jelly beans, specifically Starburst jelly beans. 
But there's lots of debate online about what the worst Easter candy is. Peeps. All right, Cadbury eggs. All right. I, I discovered some stuff this week I didn't know, like coconut nest are on there. And, you know, I, I didn't know this, but uh, apparently the solid. Uh, now, some, some of you got this in your Easter basket this morning. Sorry. Solid uh, chocolate Easter egg bunny is worse than the hollow. I always, you know, the hollow one always felt disappointed. You bite into it, there's nothing there. But the solid is worse, so maybe it's a blessing in disguise to get the hollow, right? So it really, it comes down to two camps on the worst Easter candy. And since we're all here, I thought we'd just see where you are on this, all right? The two are Pete's and Cadbury cream eggs, all right? So how many of you are the worst candy or the Cadbury cream eggs, all right? How many are the Peeps or the worst how many of you are wrong and think it's something else? I don't know. Right? And there's lots of, there's lot, and our, by the way, the informal poll here, the informal poll here is that the peeps are the worst. There's lots of stuff around Easter that can get us distracted from what is the main thing about Easter. And so I just want to start the sermon today by looking at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. We're just going to read the story from Luke. You know it's in all four of the Gospels because it is the essence of the Gospel. The crucifixion and the resurrection are in our four Gospels. As we look at verses 1 through 12 today, we're just going to read them. We're going to talk about it for a minute. Then we're going to talk about what that means for us. Luke chapter 24 says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead, asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Now, I know you don't amen when I read the Bible very much, but that's a good place to do it. I'm going to read it again, all right? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them telling the apostles these things. But these words to the apostles seemed like nonsense. And they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran into the tomb. When he stopped, stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. The reality is that what we do here at First Baptist Church is centered upon the fact that we believe with everything we have that Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave, but he rose again. And that Christianity, our belief, is not new some new approach to morality and how to navigate life better. And it's not 
about new insights that we've gotten into the spiritual world, that it is literally a religion, a faith, a belief that revolves around a dead man coming out of the grave on his own. Now, let's just be honest that the world around us is having a harder and harder time believing the factual nature of the resurrection. Maybe even some of you have a difficult time thinking about the reality that Jesus has come back from the dead, has risen and is alive forevermore. And what I want us to understand today as we look at this story from the very first Easter morning as recorded by Luke, it was also a time of wonder for these first disciples. Amazement. They were perplexed. They wondered what was going on. We get a clue in chapter 24, verse 1, that the women went to the tomb not expecting to find an alive Jesus. How do we know? Because they're carrying spices with them. Spices that were used for burial. Jesus had been brought down from the cross too late on Friday night. The Sabbath was starting. They could not do anything with the body at that time. So they were going to have to wait till the next day. Well, the next day started at sundown on Saturday, but it's too dark. They couldn't do anything then. So Sunday morning at first light, they're going to take care of the body of Jesus. They're not thinking this ministry, this mission, this belief system, this movement is just about to begin. They're thinking, it's over and done. And they go with the spices to the tomb. In one gospel, there's even some discussion about, hey, how are we going to get the stone rolled away? How are we going to do that? It was a huge stone that had been rolled down a hill, locked into place. How in the world were they going to get it back? Could the guards do that? They didn't know. And they show up and Jesus is not there. They come back and they tell the disciples, and we know from Scripture that it's lots of Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, and the other women. One of those other women, most assuredly, was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they get back and tell the disciples, and I love how the Christian Standard Bible, what we use, that version of it, says it in verse 11 of chapter 24. These words seemed like nonsense. What's amazing is that initial doubt and lack of belief and thought of nonsense would quickly turn in the hours ahead to complete confidence in the resurrection of Jesus to the point that every one of those men in that room would die for their faith and that belief. Except perhaps John, but he was isolated on an island after they tried to burn him in hot oil for not denouncing Jesus, and he survived. Every one of them within hours would come to an understanding of the resurrection that they would never recant, even in the face of their own death. Sometimes in the skeptical world we live in, people ask, do you really believe that? And my answer to them is yes. And I have a myriad of reasons that I believe. There are lots of ways that I could kind of argue that and talk about that. But one of the most convincing evidences is those guys were radically changed for the rest of their lives. And they gave their life for the claim that Jesus rose again. And here's the thing. If we 
believe and know that Christ is risen, it changes absolutely everything for us. Now, it just tells us the story in Luke chapter 24. Luke doesn't then go, and here are the implications of that going forward. But the rest of the New Testament does. Now, we're not going to read the entire New Testament this morning. And all God's people said, amen. That's a long time, right? But I just want to point out three or four things that are in the New Testament that tell us the importance of what it means for Jesus to be raised from the dead. And the first thing is this, that if Jesus is raised from the dead, we can find freedom from our failures. That no longer are our failures fatal or final, but that Jesus' resurrection verifies the payment he made on the cross for you and for me. Paul says in Romans 4, that Jesus' resurrection is God's verification that he accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as appropriate and right and good, and that that sacrifice for my sins, for your sins, for those that would believe in the world, that that sacrifice was sufficient and good to forgive us of our sins. It is literally like the receipt, the resurrection is, that shows that the purchase has been made. It's like walking out of Walmart or Sam's Club and somebody's there to check your receipt. Do you really buy that stuff? The resurrection is God's verification. It's like the cards that people are putting on Facebook all over the place, whether they're supposed to or not, of the fact that they have been vaccinated. And it's there. It's a verification, a receipt of what has happened. The resurrection, Romans 4 says, proves that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. It's proof that God accepted his sacrifice. Now, what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal about that. That without that proof of the salvation coming from the cross, you and I find ourselves in a hopeless state. Because all of us have chosen to disobey God and to walk away from Him and to do things on our own, by our own power, for our own sake, without regard to what God's law or understanding would be in our situation. And the Bible calls that sin, and it is serious enough that the punishment we deserve is death. And the cross of Jesus, when he died for our sins, it says that he went to the cross, the blood shed there to pay for our sins once and for all, so that we would never have to worry about the guilt or the shame or the punishment or the power of sin in our lives again. And when he rose again from the grave, God stamped his approval on that sacrifice and says, it is so. I don't know if you know this, but the biblical word for that is amen. And the resurrection is God's amen for the sacrifice on the cross. Let it be. And what's interesting is when we think about those words, the words used throughout Scripture are that he has laid on him the iniquity of us all and that he has redeemed us. He has purchased us. He has bought us back with his own blood. Now think about the book of Hosea. Beautiful picture of a prophet called by God to marry a woman of terrible reputation 
who then leaves him and finds herself in a bondage situation. And God comes to the prophet Hosea and says, go buy back your wife. One of the strangest verses and commands in all of scripture. And yet the idea is that we have put ourselves in the bondage of sin. And Jesus is Hosea coming to buy back his bride. And the resurrection proves it's effective. Here's the second thing. If Jesus is raised from the dead, we can be transformed. Not only can our past be removed and the guilt and shame taken from that, but we, in the midst of our lives, can have our lives transformed. I don't think that very many of us in this room would say that we 100% satisfied with everything about who we are and the way we act. That if we're honest, that we understand in our lives that there are places and areas where we are not as strong or as capable or as good or as right as we need to be. And we see our own failings when it comes to being a father or a son or a husband. To being a good spouse or parent or child. To being a good worker good church member, a follower of Christ. And the good news of the resurrection is that Scripture teaches us that the power that we have seen in the transformation of Christ from dead unto living is at work in our lives to transform us into the people God has called us to be. And that no one is too far from being saved by God. I even think it's demonstrated in one of the people here at the tomb. One of the first people to hear that Jesus is alive is a lady named Mary Magdalene. Now, if you know anything about Mary Magdalene, when we first meet her in Scripture, it says that she was possessed by seven demons. Seven. Now, here's what's interesting about that. I think that that's an accurate count. I don't think they're making up numbers there. But in Scripture, the number seven is also a significant number because it means completeness or wholeness. And so this idea is that Mary Magdalene's life was completely inundated and controlled by demonic or spiritual forces set against God. She would have appeared mentally ill to the people around them. She would have been grossly immoral. One part of scripture teaches us that she was a prostitute. Definitely would have been an outcast in Jewish society and would have been talked about in every place. She would have been hopeless and destitute. And yet we see her as one of, if not the first people in scripture to know that Jesus is alive. That is a redemption story where our lives are not just saved from our past, but are transformed into something new. My wife Susan is a second grade teacher and part of what they do at uh, Madison Creek is a part of their second grade program is they do the butterfly transition watch. So they get caterpillars and they... You know, feed them and put them in these little bitty cups and feed them and give them food and all of that. And before long, the caterpillars start to slow down, they get a little bigger, and then they start to build um, a cocoon. And 
begin to go into that stage and they hang up the cocoon all over onto these nets. And then inevitably, after several days, they will come back. And usually it happens at night. They'll come into the classroom in the morning and there are butterflies in the net. And that caterpillar that most of us would look at and go, right? Now, some of you are bug people. That's on you. All right. But most people would go, right? Into a butterfly that is beautiful and we want to attract to our houses. And like, that would be great. The same word in Greek that would be used to describe the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly is the same word that is used to describe the transformation of you and I from the sinful nature of who we were to what God is turning us into. And in the process of that, he is whittling away past behaviors and sins and habits and attitudes that need to be shed. There's some of you in this room today that he wants to deliver from something. He wants to deliver you from an attitude that you've held on to for way too long that's causing problems in your relationships or at your workplace or in your life in general. Some of you have bad habits that are keeping you from following the Lord as you need to follow. Some of you feel that there is spiritual warfare happening over you or your family and it is preventing you from being able to truly understand what God is calling you to do or to live free in the midst of it. Some of you are dealing with addiction in your life to a substance or to content You're dealing with an addiction that God wants to set you free and deliver you, to change you. And the resurrection proves that God has the power to do anything he wants to do. And for some of you in this room, you need to allow God to whittle away the things of your life that need to be gone as he transforms you into the person that he's called you to be. The third thing, if Jesus is raised from the dead, we can be empowered to live today. There are lots of verses and ideas and thoughts in Scripture that just stagger me. One of those is that in the book of Ephesians, it kind of touches on this and talks about this. It says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. Now, I don't know how much power it takes to revive a dead person that is dead, dead. Like, I don't know how much God power that takes. But I can tell you this, it's a lot. And it says, whatever power was available to raise Christ from the dead is available to you and to me. Scripture says that it is better for Jesus to go away because we will do greater things after he leaves than while he was here. And I'm wondering, how is that possible? All I know is the resurrection proves that Christ is is alive and sent his spirit and because of that you and I have the strength to endure whatever may come our way to do whatever we are called to do to live however we are called to live to get rid of whatever we are called to get rid of because the same power that brought Jesus back from the grave is alive and well and those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you're in need of strength for today or tomorrow, hope for today or tomorrow, power for today or tomorrow, it's available 
because the resurrection proves it's available. And then this is the last thing and then we're done. If Jesus is raised from the dead, we can know that our future is secure. There's this point throughout the New Testament that what happened in his resurrection is the first fruit of what will come for us. It's the first understanding of what is coming. And that God is in the process even now and will bring it to conclusion at some point in our hope in the near future when he will radically change everything we see and do away with all of the things that are scarred and marred by sin. Author J.R. Tolkien, writing about when Christ redoes all of this, says that in that moment he will make every sad thing untrue. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, and you can go back and look through it at some point, write it down, but he talks about in there that at that time, when Christ comes again, when he sets everything right, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will all be together. A child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze together. Young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and will stick his hand in the snake's den. That not be harmed. And it says, this is the reason. There is coming a day when the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus has complete control over sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15.54 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. This morning, on the way to church, I received a text message that one of our longtime church members had passed away this weekend. Mr. Al Jernigan, some many of you know Mr. Al. Mr. Al Jernigan passed away this weekend. And my first thought was how tragic for Mr. Al to pass away on Easter weekend. Like, you just, from now on, on Easter, you're going to have... You know, Miss Hilda is going to live with that thought. Family's going to live with that thought. Every Easter is going to be that. But then I just felt a nudging of the Lord to say, what more appropriate time to be reminded of the fact that we have a hope and a future that is secure because of the resurrection of Jesus. First Thessalonians four came back that says, We grieve not as those who have no hope. And so we grieve, we mourn, but we grieve as people that understand that Al Jernigan is more alive today than he has ever been. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we celebrate the fact that because of the resurrection, we know that when this time on earth is done, it is not the end of the line. For us. And for those of us that are saved by Jesus, we can be assured that we are spending eternity with Him. In a place where a kid's going to stick their hand in a cobra pit and nothing happened. That's a strange analogy in there. But it's very apt to the fact that nobody would do that. And all of those kind of scenarios, I said, if Christ is risen, I just want you to understand that in the biblical context, that word if, a lot of times we think of it in ours, like it may happen or it may not. But in scripture, that word is almost always understood as 
since or because. Since Christ is raised from the dead, we can have victory over our failures. We can be transformed. We can be delivered. We can have the power that we need for today. And we can be sure of our future. And so the question I have for you today on this Easter Sunday morning is, what is the next step for you? It's Easter. Don't let this time go by without truly thinking about where you are with the Lord. And for some of you in this room and for some of you watching online, the next step for you is salvation. That you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have never been saved. And here's the reality. All of us in this room, every single one of us in this room, every single one of you watching online... All of us are people who have made mistakes. But it's bigger than that because we have chosen our own way against God's way. And because of that, we have done wrong to the eternal, almighty, holy, and perfect God. And scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from him. And if you're in this room, if you're watching, and you have never dealt with the reality of your need to be saved, then there's no better day than right here and right now. Scripture teaches that the wages of sin is death, but God provided a way in Christ, through Christ, by His death on the cross, to pay the punishment for our sins that you and I should have paid. He stood in our place as a perfect sacrifice and then rose again on the third day to prove He had the power To overcome our sin. And it's three simple steps to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not so much the words that are uttered as the heart that is behind it. The soul that is within it. And that is you simply admit your need for salvation. Admit your need to be saved by Christ. Admit that you can't do it on your own. That you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I talk with kids sometimes, I'll say, have you ever done anything wrong? I have never talked to a child who said they were perfect. Part of what happens as we grow older is we become better at covering up our failures. And not admitting what's really going on. Sometimes a kid will like, yeah, maybe. And then I'll just say, if they've got brothers or sisters... Have you ever done or said anything to your brother or sister that you shouldn't have? And that stops them immediately. Right? We all, on a daily basis, commit sin. And we admit it. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He came to earth. That He lived a perfect life. That He died on the cross for our sins. And yes, We believe that he rose again from the grave as a validation of who he is and what he accomplished. When he said it is finished on the cross, that is validated by the resurrection. And then we confess that. We confess that to the Lord. We pray and say, I need to be saved, Lord. I believe Jesus is it. I'm asking you to save me today. And then we confess that publicly. For some of you in this room, that is the next step. 
For some of you in this room, the next step is the step after that. Because the Bible says that once you've accepted Christ, once you've been saved, the next step is baptism. It's simply the public declaration of who you are in Christ. It is declaring that you have joined the mission and the purpose of God and have been saved by Him and are unashamed about it. Just so you know, in Scripture, the Bible teaches that that always happens after salvation. In the book of Acts, there are 27 baptisms recorded and are talked about. And all of those happen after salvation. And so if your baptism or that form, whatever it was in the church or belief system that you're a part of, happened before you accepted Christ, then there's still a step of faith after to say, this is who I am. It's simply a step of obedience. It's nothing that saves you in the midst of that water, but it is something that declares who you are. It's like a wedding ring worn by someone who is married. Being baptized, for instance, in these waters doesn't mean that you become full-fledged Baptist or that you are joining the church necessarily. You can do that. We'd love for you to talk to you about that. It's just a declaration of who you are in Christ. For some of you here today, that's the next step is baptism. For some, you've been saved, you've been baptized, but there's still something in your life that is preventing you from seeing God in the way that God needs to be seen, from doing what God has called you to do, and you need to be delivered from that. If you're saved, God's already given the power and the forgiveness in your life, but there is still chance for Satan to have a hold on you through sin. And for some of you today, there's an attitude, there's an action, there's a habit, there's a sin in your life that you need to be delivered from or set free. For some of you, the next step is what we call development. That it's time for you to get more actively engaged in following Christ and being changed into the person he's called you to be. That may mean you need to join this church or a church a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, and begin to follow Him. That may mean that you're already part of a church or you've been coming for a while, but you need to be part of a small group. We have a great small group ministry. We have small groups that meet here on Sunday mornings, life groups that meet together before worship. We have some that meet in homes. We have some that that could do both. They, They have some that are Zooming right now and Zoom and in person. We have all kinds of combinations. And I'd love to have a conversation with you if you think it's time for you to do that. For some of you, you're involved in that stuff, but it's time to take that next step towards following Christ more resolutely, more passionately, without abandon. And then the next step for some of you in this room, this is the last one we'll talk about, is what we call deployment. And that just means that you are actively engaged in the mission of God outside these walls for the glory of his name and for the sake of his kingdom. It's not just mission trips. It's actively engaging your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers and your fellow students with the truth of the gospel. And so my question for you today is simply this. What is your next step? Salvation, baptism, deliverance, development, or deployment? All of us 
still have work and progress to be made. None of us have arrived. And so as we think through what God is calling us to do, I wonder what the next step is for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I come to you today and admit my need to be saved. Lord, I know that I have sinned against you. I have done things that are not right in your sight. And today I admit that I can do nothing about that on my own. Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ was sent by you to earth for the purpose of saving me from my sins. Lord, I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins as the perfect substitute for me. And Lord, I believe that he rose again on the third day. Lord, I ask you to come into my life to save me from my sin. To restore me and change me into who you want me to be. I confess today Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord.